Okay, we are rattling through the book of um, Genesis. And we have arrived at chapter 4. If you want to turn your Bibles, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. We're going to reference it as we walk through. Just to clarify, there's lots of things, particularly in the opening 11 chapters, there's lots of little blind alleyways we can run down when it comes to Genesis. Giants and mad stuff going on. And we might stop and take a look at some things, but generally I want to keep to the big picture of what's going on and trying to understand is how, do they, how, do, how does what is included in the book of Genesis ultimately lead us to love Jesus? That's the big question we should be asking um, ourselves. So as you turn in Genesis 4, uh, let's just pray and ask for God's help. Father, we love you. We thank you. Thank you that the little souls next door are being fed from your word, but we also realize that we too need food, spiritual food, for often we starve ourselves during the week, and we are not as regular as we should be in meeting with you, hearing from you, praying to you, Lord, and I pray that you would just be amongst us again today, open our eyes, give us understanding, Lord. If we need to have our souls brought to repentance, and may that happen, Lord. If we need rebuke, may that happen. But may we all leave here with a bigger, better picture of what it means to love and follow Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so a bit of a recap. Back in chapter 3, last time I left you with this thought that there are basically... In humanity, the Bible breaks the human race down into two seeds, two lines, if you like. We have the seed of God through the seed of the woman, Eve, and we have the seed of the serpent. And as we read through the rest of Genesis, as we read through the whole of the Bible, actually, you will see time and again these two seeds meeting together clashing and being locked in battle. And as we jump into this chapter, we see Genesis 3, the fall has occurred, a sin has come into the world, we're jumping into this chapter now. We're going to see the effects of the fall spread out from Adam and Eve into the rest of the world at that time. The world is in big trouble at the end of Genesis 3. If you look back, you see Adam and Eve are cut off from God's presence. They no longer walk with God. God no longer walks with them. They are removed from Eden. There is no access to get back to God. But then hidden away in chapter 3, we find verse 15. It's the, the good news. The gospel is in Genesis three fifteen. Even though this thing had happened, even though sin had come and offended God, God still was going to offer the human race a way out. He was going to offer an escape route. He was going to offer a way where lost sinners could find their way back to God. And he promises to send the world a saviour described as coming from the seed of the woman. And this Savior will reconcile lost sinners to God. But that's future reality. 
The reality in chapter 4 is that it is the devil now prowling the earth with his demonic forces looking wherever he can to spoil the plan of God and if he can to destroy the seed of God. So we read in verse 1, we'll just jump in verse 1, we read Cain is born. Cain is, if you care about these things, the first human baby conceived through natural sexual relations. Obviously Adam and Eve were created by God, they were not conceived. And we see Eve praises God for the arrival of this man-child. And then uh, we see in verse 2 that Abel comes onto the scene. As you read the text, you see Cain works the ground, Abel tends sheep. So, so far, so good. God had done what in the garden? He said to Adam and Eve, work. He said to the man, work, you've got to work. Work isn't sinful. It might be boring and horrible for most of you, but work is a good thing commanded by God. So both these men are working. They're obeying the command of the Lord. Then we read in verse 3 that Cain brings to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. In other words, he brings him an offering from his labors. He works the ground. He's obviously grown fruit or whatever else he's growing, and he thinks, I'm going to bring an offering to God. We read in verse 4, Abel, he brings an offering, but his offering is the firstborn of his flock, uh, of their fat portion. So, so far, so good. Both men offering to God the fruit of their labors. But then look at the last half of verse 4, and we read this. The Lord, depending on your, your, your version, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. In other words, the Lord liked, the Lord was pleased with Abel's little lamb offering. But things take a turn in verse 5. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Happy with Abel's, the Lord unhappy with Cain's. And then we read, Cain is very angry and his face fell. He's raging, he's boiling. He's so mad he can't keep it off his face. And then we get verse 6. God sees Cain's anger and says to him, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? You not said that to our kids? What are you looking like that for? Have you got that face on you? What's going on here? What's the difference between the two men's offering? You read that, you don't think, you think it's fair enough, right? It's not like Cain can bring a sheep if, he doesn't, if he's not a shepherd. But there's a simple difference, and it's this. One was the blood of an animal sacrifice... One was fruit from the ground. And God, if we remember, just after the fall, he instituted the shedding of blood for Adam and Eve when he covered their guilt and shame with the hides of animals he'd killed. Remember? They were naked. They were ashamed. They were embarrassed. The Lord comes. He kills an animal. They're covered. He covers their shame and embarrassment with animal hide. This is the first shedding of blood in the Bible. And so this blood sacrifice is a reminder to the human race of the seriousness of sin. But it's also something that pointed to Jesus. Why? Because we know, don't we, from the Bible, Jesus is the ultimate sacrificial lamb who will one day come to fully save 
and reconcile the seed of the woman. So the bottom line is this. Abel approaches God in the right way. Cain doesn't. In fact, later in the New Testament, we learn this, that Abel approached God in faith, whereas Cain did not. So straight away, straight away in Genesis 4, we have already got that that clear line between the two seeds. See that? One reconciled to God through faith, the other that rebels against God and refuses to submit to his authority. Cain thought he could come to God and please him on his own terms. But Cain is just about to learn that you cannot approach God like that. We must approach God as he commands us in the Bible. If you want to come to God with clean hands and a pure heart, if you want your sins to be forgiven, then the only way that is possible, God tells us, is if we come through Jesus Christ. You're looking for salvation. If you're looking for something, if you're looking for some sort of meaning in the church, in the book around Christians, that's all well and good. But salvation is found in no other name than Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter. It wouldn't matter if Cain had driven a tractor full of fruit for an offering, if his heart wasn't there, if his heart was not right before the Lord. You can't work our way to heaven. You can do a million good things of your life. You can be the greatest bloke possible in the world, or woman, and that'll do you no good spiritually. It makes not one bit of difference. It makes you a decent human being, but it does not make you saved from the coming wrath. We come to God through repentance and faith in Christ and no other way. If you do that, if we throw our hands up in the air, if we humbly admit our sinfulness, if we come to God and say, listen, I'm a mess. I'm a mess. I've tried living my life my way without you. And do you know where it's got me? If I'm being honest, nowhere. I need you, Lord. I'm done. If we throw our hands up humbly in the air, confess our sin and turn from our sin, then... God hears our prayers, and we will be reconciled to him. Anything else is a waste of time. So this, we've got, sorry, we've got Cain. Cain's offering being rejected uh, by God. And then look at verse 5. We see there, sorry, we see in verse 5, at least, uh, the second half, God's rejection of his offering makes Cain very angry. We already said, why are you angry, Cain? Now, here comes the warning. Now, I'm not one for marking things in Bibles, but if you want to mark a verse out in the Bible, verse 7 is your, it's got to be in your top 10. Or underline it on your phone or whatever it is you do. Post it on Instagram. Verse 7, here's God's warning. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, here it comes, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Careful, Cain. Watch the heart, son. Watch the attitude. Sin is crouching at the door. And if you give it a little even chink of light, it will come in and ruin you. 
Worship me, God says, in the correct way, and you will be reconciled to me as Abel is. You think, God is saying to, to Cain, that your offering is good enough. I'm telling you, it's not. Now, don't put on the pouty face and leave here bitter and angry, he says. Because if you allow that to go unchecked, you're going to end up in all sorts of trouble. Every single Christian should have this verse burned into, should have it tattooed actually onto our bodies. I'll let parents discuss that with children afterwards. Sin is crouching at the door. It wants to rule you. It wants to sweep you away. It wants to have authority over you. Now, we need to take that warning seriously, do we not? In almost every single situation in life, as Christians, we are dealing with temptation. We are dealing with some kind of relational problems. We've all got problems in this room, haven't we? Either with ourselves or with somebody else or with both. Or with lots of somebody else's. We're dealing with something all the time. And sometimes it's wiser to take a breath, stand back, and remember verse 7. Hang on, sin is crouching at the door here. And if I allow it any more room into my heart and mind, it will swallow me whole. So we need to hold back the snarky comment. We need to think twice before we send that email. We need to delete that social media post. We need to run away from that gossip and slander. Sin is crouching at all of our doors, and it wants to enter into our lives, and it wants to rule over us. And you are a fool if you think that that doesn't apply to you. This is how sin works. Once we decide in our mind to ignore God and sin, things begin to deteriorate pretty rapidly. Once the first sin, we beckon in. Sin doesn't happen to us by accident. We realize that, right? Not accidentally fall into sin. We invite sin in. We entertain it in the mind. We roll it about. And we're trying to think, can I justify this? And if I can't justify it, I'll find someone who annoys me, and then I'll use them as a justification for the thing. But that's not your problem. It's not my problem. Because that first sin is only the first step. Sin's like a snowball rolling down a hill, isn't it? It gets bigger and bigger and picks up more and more speed, and the bigger and bigger it gets, the more damage it's liable to do to the first person it hits. The first sin always leads to the next sin. And then soon we begin drowning in lies. We deny wrongdoing. We deny our sin. We justify it. We make excuses for our behavior. We pass the blame onto someone else. It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. It wasn't me, he should have told me. We sink deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into a pit. The light gets further and further and further away. We've not guarded our heart against the devil. 
We have not taken heed of verse 7 where sin is crouching at the door and it constantly wants to have us. We've not humbled ourselves before God. We've not sought his forgiveness. And so we just grow spiritually colder, more bitter, both against God and his people. First, it's someone else's fault. Then it's my family's fault, my partner's fault, the kid's fault, the church's fault. But it's never my fault. Sin is crouching at the door. It wants to own us. So we see this rapid decline, don't we, in Cain's behavior. The Lord gives him the warning, and then what happens? Verse 8. Off he goes, speaks to his brother. By the time you get to the end of the verse, his brother's dead. And then we get this question from God in verse 10. What have you done? Just so you understand, God isn't asking the question because he doesn't know what he's done. It's an exclamation. What, what have you done? Did you not just listen to what I said in the previous verse? Look what he says. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I've just given you an opportunity to confess. I'm giving you an opportunity to return. I've just warned you about the dangers of sin. And he's saying to him, look, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. He's giving the man an opportunity to say, I've done this. He's giving him an opportunity to confess before the judgment falls. That's how we do church discipline, right? What are we doing when we we want to call out one another's sin? We want to give one another time to confess it, to repent, to turn back to the Lord's. That's why when we have members meetings and we talk about sin and we say to people, look, if you know the individual, if you really deeply have a relationship with them, torture them. Let's give them an opportunity to repent before excommunication follows. But Cain doesn't have it. Doesn't say a word, says nothing. So the axe falls in verses 11 and 12. Okay. Here it comes. Here's the consequences then. Now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You'll be a fugitive. You'll be a wanderer on the earth. You'll not be blessed in any way. He'll never find rest in his soul again, the Lord says. Everything you touch in your life will ultimately crumble into nothing. Look how Cain reacts, verse 13. Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. You want want that in the modern translation? Well, that's not fair. That's a bit heavy, isn't it? That's a bit over the top. Thought we were supposed to be all loving and that, and forgiving. Well, I am. The Lord is forgiving. When there's repentance, that's not repentance. 
That's the worldly sorrow of a man who's been caught out by God and can't deal with the consequences. This is a man, he tried to hide his sin, he got found out. Instead of throwing himself on the mercy of God, he moans about the punishment. That is not repentance. Look back at verse 8 again. And we see Cain not listening to God. And he kills him. Why does he do this, Cain? What's he doing? What's Abel done to him? He's done nothing to him. All Abel has done is worship God correctly. What all Cain has done is let sin in through the front door of his heart. Jealousy and bitterness take over. Kills his brother. Why? Because God is more pleased with Abel's sacrifice than his. So he lets sin in. He gives it free reign over his mind. It gets so bad, he kills his own flesh and blood. Blood is shed. It's the wrong blood. And here we've got the seed of the, of the serpent trying to wipe out the seed of the woman before God's plan has even begun. So notice that, notice that just notice that the progression. Cain doesn't approach God in the way he should have. Doesn't worship God correctly. God warns Cain, don't, do not sin. Cain ignores God, kills his brother. Cain lies to God. That's the exact trajectory of sin in our lives, isn't it? You know, if someone comes to me in council and said, you know what? I've, 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 I've just committed adultery. Here's what I know for a fact at every single point in over 25 years as a pastor. The man or woman didn't just wake up that morning and commit adultery. It doesn't happen like that. Sin doesn't work that way. What happened is this. Somewhere in the past, they began... Slacking off maybe in their devotional life. Read the Bible less and less. Don't have time for it. Make excuses. Leave it on the side. Pray less and less. Don't really find an excuse every time someone wants to meet with us one-to-one to pray and see how we're doing. Drift in and out of Sunday services. It's the start. As we do that, sin crouches at the door of our hearts. We think we can handle it. We swap the church service for a couple of drinks with the lads down the pub before the game. Won't hurt anyone, we tell ourselves. Just one look, it's just one kiss. Soon we are armpit deep in a situation we know is wrong. We've ignored all the warnings and wise advice from the Bible and fellow believers. And then we get angry when we get convicted or if somebody challenges it. We're like Cain, we get mad. We get mad at God. We get mad at the person who challenged us. We get mad at the church and its members. They can't judge me. Who are they? We begin to downplay our sin. 
and we begin to focus on everybody else's sin. I mean, is any of this sounding familiar to us? We lie through our teeth. The amount of people, even in this room, who've sat in my office and lied to my face. I'm sinning badly. Look me in the eyes, and I've said, I don't believe you, and then they've got angry. Anger. The amount, this is how deceitful we are. We can generate, like Cain, an anger against someone challenging us for our behavior, knowing in our hearts that they're right and we are up to no good. Man, how deceitful is that? We're pretty good, aren't we? Aren't you scared at your ability for self-deception? Because I'm petrified of mine. And that's what's going on here. And once that happens, it becomes a steep curve, as we've seen as he goes out and murders his brother. And we, you might think, well, I, don't, I haven't murdered anyone. Well, you know, think about the last week, how many people you've butchered in your heart this week. Eh? We, we should all be doing life. That's what Jesus said, didn't he? In the heart. The only thing worrying Cain isn't his sin, it's saving his own skin. Look at verse 14. He says to God, Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground. From your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive. I shall be a wanderer. Whoever finds me will kill me. I'm not going to make it, he says to God. My life's going to be in danger. How am I going to survive? What am I going to do? How's it going to look? People are going to know that's Cain. Butchered his brother because he's a dingbat. He's a rat. And he didn't want the shame. My life will be in danger. True repentance is always seen in a godly grief for having offended God. True repentance doesn't say, what will this mean for me if I cough to this? How's it going to make me look that isn't repentance. True repentance is, I, do, I did it. I did it, and even though I'm going to have to eat it, God, give me the strength to face the consequences of whatever it is that I've done. Please. Because trust me, if you are running and hiding from the Lord and engaging in secret, constant sin, Sin is more than crouching at your door. Sin's in your living room. And it'll want to take over your house if you're not careful. Look what God says in verse 15. The Lord says to him, Lot, so if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. So the Lord put a mark on Cain. Lest any, be, any who found him should attack him. Do you know how many books have been written on the mark of Cain? Shall I tell you what the answer is, what the mark of Cain was? Anyone care? I haven't got a clue. There you go. Here's the point. The point's not the mark of Cain. The point is this. God, once again, unbelievably, shows his compassion and mercy upon a guilty murderer. You won't be harmed, he tells Cain. You'll carry my mark, whatever that is. People will know not to harm you. 
For if they harm you, they'll face my justice. They've no need to seek justice for Abel's murder because I've already judged you. And God wants him to be alive as a sign to the human race of how God deals with sin. Now, sometimes in the Bible, God deals with sin and he instantly deals with it. Instant death in some cases. Sometimes suffering as with Cain here. And sometimes the sword of God's judgment falls quickly. And sometimes it doesn't fall for many years. And sometimes it doesn't fall even in this life. But one thing is for certain. We can escape. We can hide. We can pretend. We can do all of those things to each other. We cannot do them to God. We can run away from our responsibilities. We can do that but we cannot run far enough away to get away from the Lord. Every single person in this room will die. Every one of us will meet our creator, the Bible says. And every single one of us will have to pay the price for our sin. Good for you if you've got away with it now. Won't be so good for you on the final day. All your bravado and cocky and showing off or whatever it is, your denials, won't do you any harm, won't do you any good whatsoever. The point is this. Someone has to pay for our sin. We pay for our sin or somebody else does. We pay for our sin or Jesus pays for our sin. Somebody pays. We might have escaped human justice for years. You will not escape the final justice of God. When we stand before God at the end of our time on earth, we will either carry the mark of the serpent or the mark of Jesus. And so the story continues. 16 to 24, we're running through. Cain moves away to the land of Nod's. Verse 17 tells us he begins to have a wife, family with his wife. They name their first son Enoch. Then in 18 to 22, you get this list of sons born from Enoch. We read of a man called Lamech in in verse 19. We'll we'll come back to him. We read in, actually we'll talk to him now. We read in verse 20 that Lamech took two wives instead of one. Another sign of how fast sin was spreading. This is a denial of God's marriage ordinance. One man, one woman. Already they're breaking it. Then we see the descendants of Lamech from 20 to 22. And sin is ever more present in the hearts of these men. And what's fascinating to me about 20 to 22 is this. That these men are responsible and they create the beginning of industry and culture. They might be sinners... But the creative ones are geniuses, capable of amazing things. You know, sin has spoiled God's image within us. But not completely. We are totally corrupt in every part, but we're not completely corrupt. Interesting to me that the human race was making great advances in science and industry and building cities 
and yet the only thing not advancing was godliness. Sin advanced as quick as the world had modernized. The more intelligent the human heart, seemingly the darker and more wicked it became. Sin was outgrowing everything else as humanity was trying to leave God behind. We might be modern, we might be super modern, we might you know, have more gadgets and things than any other generation. <clears throat> Doctors can heal many diseases that kill people a hundred years ago. You can build skyscrapers and cities in desert places. You can fly to space. We can clone animals or even humans if you're into all that. We can delay death with machines and surgeries. We can do so much, but we cannot stop the spread of sin. All our technological and scientific advances, we cannot cure what really is the problem with the human soul. We can ignore God, we can deny the concept of sin, but that doesn't heal the heart sickness of the human race. We can hold back flood waters, we can protect the, predict the weather, but we cannot overrun Sorry, we cannot prevent sin from flooding the world. And so when we, as, we walk, as we get through chapter 4 to, all the way to verse 22, we see the seed of the serpent is spreading on the earth as godlessness expands. Look at 23, this dude Lamech. This dude is off his nut. This dude's obviously killed some young laddie, probably over an argument with a woman, if you can understand that from the text. And he's so happy about it, he sings a song about it to his two wives. He's ignoring the marriage covenant, and he's also murdering whoever he wants, and then he sings about it. Why? Because he's got fear of no consequences. And so that's what we've got. The spread of evil spreads out across the world. But what about the other seed? What about the seed of the woman? We turn back to Adam, because you know what it looks like, doesn't it? Once Cain is dead, the seed of God is dead. The line has ended. But that's not true, verse 25. Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son. She names him Seth. She said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. So Abel's dead, but that is not the end of the seed of God. Verse 26, son born to Seth called Enosh. Look at the verse. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So we've got the description of the seed of the serpent, growing, moving, building cities, developing the world, and yet sin and murder and adultery and all sorts of stuff blackening their hearts. But at the same time that that is going on, we have the description of the seed of the woman slowly but surely living according to the rules of their creator. Nothing's changed in 2023. The godly and the ungodly still exist. We still coexist with one another. In, as in Cain's day, the ungodly far outnumber the godly. As I've said, we live in a time of incredible scientific advance. We're more connected than ever before through our phone, through social media. New inventions coming out every week. And the ungodly, as in Cain's day, still peddle the lie that God does not exist and that we'd all be better off accepting that. But are we better off? Is our world better off without God? We're more comfortable, at least in this country. We're healthier. 
But are we any better morally than Lamech and Cain and all the rest who curse God and deny his existence? Are we? We're not happier. Society's lost its head, hasn't it? All in men, women, and women, men, and cats, and weird stuff going on out there, right? We've lost it. We've never had more than any other th- generation of people before us, and yet we're still unhappy. We're unhappier than ever before. We're more depressed than ever before. We're more isolated in a world that's never been more connected than ever before. Life's hopeless. Life's meaningless. Life is full of emptiness. Yet in the middle of this, we have this remnant of the seed of the woman who know and love Jesus Christ because he was the promised seed. Christians, those of us who recognize, look, I am a sinner. I do need Christ. We may be small in number, but we will never die out. It doesn't matter how powerless we are. It doesn't matter if the the world takes away our rights. It doesn't even matter if they take our lives. The pride of Christ will never die. The seed of Jesus will never die because God will never allow it. God bought it at too high a price. I'll leave you with this. In this life, we stand with the seed of the servant or the seed of God. There's no other place to stand. There's no middle ground to say, well, I don't side with either. I just don't believe in anything. That is to side with the children of the devil. God cares about one question, really, in the Bible. Will you worship me or not? You're either children of the light, children of the darkness. You're either a wheat or a weed, a son of the devil, a son of God's. You'll either glory in your sin or you'll run away from it as fast as you can. What's wrong with our world? We are. The world is giving us exactly what sinners want, freedom to live as we please, freedom to take what we want when we want. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We don't want anyone telling us how to live. And the end result is when you turn on the telly, today and you see the state of it out there and despite and yet despite all of that wickedness despite all of the evil we are still here singing to God's glory praying to God's glory listening to God's word even in the darkest of situation the Christian has every single reason to be hopeful light has come into the world the light of Jesus Christ and the darkness of the world can never extinguish that light. Amen.